I don't mean to alarm any of you, but Christmas is 15 weeks away. Now, I love, part of what you love about Christmas is you get all these uh, cards, and uh, you give the Christmas cards, you get the updates, especially, and, and, and I guess this is more so for those of us that aren't active on social media, it's a chance to catch up on the, uh, uh, the, the happenings in people's lives, especially those that live far away. But do you ever get those family newsletters? You know the ones I'm talking about? I mean, do you really know the ones I'm talking about? Uh, Ian Duguid gives a great example he found of one he imagines. The ones that run something like this. It's been a great year for the Lamplighter family. Greg's been hoping for a promotion, but we were all surprised when the CEO came to his desk and just begged him to take over the whole company. The whole office chipped in and gave the family a week in Paris to celebrate. Wasn't that nice? Of course, Jenny's been busy as well. You probably saw in the news how she rescued a school bus full of children from a kidnapper with just a plastic comb. It's nice to think that the poem we wrote for last year's holiday letter will be chiseled into the wall of the Library of Congress. Of course, Spielberg's doing a movie about the twins, and little Greg Jr.'s science project was all the talk at the New England Journal of Medicine. When you get letter like that, do you cheer for the lamplighters? No, you want to take their perfect little family picture and tear it up and set it on fire and stomp on the ashes. Why? Pride. Not the pride of the lamplighters. God will deal with them or not as he chooses. No, what makes you feel that way is not the pride in them. It's our own pride. Why? Because pride in its very nature, the essence of pride, puts you in competition with others. And so you get a letter like that from the lamplighters, and you realize what it reveals out of your own heart. And immediately you compare yourself to your own achievements. You're looking around at your kid's science project going, ay, ay, ay. <laughs> You inherently compare, and it, 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 we, we, we boast if we feel like we've done better than those we're in comparison to. We sulk if we feel we've done less. Pride puts us in comparison. Pride, oh, pride is, it, 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 it's sneaky. It, it ruins everything. Why is pride so wicked? Pride begins to instill in us a sense of being owed. I'm owed. Right? And so, if, and, and pride is sneaky. If life is going well, like the lamplighters, or if your life's going poorly, either way, pride can sneak in there. How? Well, if things are going well, what you tend to think is, of course, I earned it. Right? I did this. It's because I'm so smarter. You know what? I just worked harder than everybody else. Or, you know, when you do it right and you treat people right and you treat people ethically like I have, you know, what can you expect? Good things, right? So there's a sense of owed. Or if things are going poorly in your life, there's still that sense of pride. I deserve better than this. I didn't deserve this. This shouldn't have happened to me. And therefore, pride sucks the joy out of life. The opposite the Bible talks about, of course, is humility. Humility receives every day as a gift. Because I'm not owed anything, I can receive everything as a gift from God. Pride can't do that. Pride sucks the joy out of everything. Think about it. Your good things are ruined and your bad things are made even worse by pride. What do I mean? Well, think about it. You, 
if, if you're prideful and something good happens to you, right? You're given a promotion, you're given a, a, a raise, you, you, your kids uh, re- receive some honor, uh, uh, you, you, you yourself are, uh, have some windfall or inheritance, right? Pride, when you're given a good thing, you don't think, oh, your first thought is, well, it's about time. In fact, it should have happened five years ago, right? What happened? Well, pride has robbed you of the joy of what otherwise could be yours. And when things are going bad, it's the same thing. Now, instead of walking through this suffering in communion with Christ, when things are going bad and you're going through suffering, what's your thought? I deserve better than this. I'm entitled to more than this. Pride is something that is so easy to spot in other people, (laughs) isn't it? We had in Daniel chapter 4, will you turn there? God loves us too much to allow the spiritual cancer of pride to rob us of joy, to ruin us of, uh, well, really, it's a spiritual cancer. And so God deals with a prideful king, Nebuchadnezzar. And though this is 580 years before Christ, and it can feel so far removed from us today, I want you to see that God has the same word for Nebuchadnezzar as a word for all of us. Everybody there, Daniel chapter 4. If you haven't been with us, been in a series called True Grit, a series on the book of Daniel. Daniel is, um, resolves in his heart in chapter 1 that he's going to live as an exile in Babylon differently. He, he, he's going to make some changes. He decides ahead of time. He's going to resolve. In Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar is given this frightening dream, and nobody can tell what the dream is, but God reveals it to Daniel. And in Daniel 3, Nebuchadnezzar sets up this golden image and makes everybody bow, but Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refuse to bow, and God rescues them from the fiery furnace. And here, the great ruler of Babylon finds out who really rules. Everybody got it? Chapter 1 is about resolve. Chapter 2, God reveals. Chapter 3, God rescues. Chapter 4, God rules. And I'm praying there's an R for 5. Got it? Here we are. God rules. God rules. Heaven rules. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar, just, just a little bit of background. Remember, he ruled this empire, which is modern-day Iraq. And he, you know, he had a lot to uh, look over. And uh, things were going so well. Let's pick up the story in verse 4. Daniel four starting in verse four i nebuchadnezzar ah okay so we're we're he starts this is autobiography autobiographical he's giving us his testimony a testimony from an ancient king i nebuchadnezzar was at home in my palace contented and prosperous he is leaned back in his babylonian lazy boy he has got his sandals kicked off and it's more than he's just relaxing he really is contented and prosperous i mean think about it It, it, unlimited power Uh, he's not worried about another army nobody else has an army Uh, he can't be downsized you know he's not worried about a layoff he's not worried about anything he he is the boss when something shook him badly verse 5 i had a dream that made me afraid as i was lying in bed the images and visions that passed through my mind terrified me here's a quick lesson of course for anyone who is uh it's like you can't turn your mind off and you've got all this anxiety and you're struggling because you can't get a good night's sleep um i think there's hope for you but here's where the hope is not found let me be clear you see this um don't think for a minute that if you had a little bit more success, you'd get better sleep. If you had a little bit more money, then you'd get more 
sleep. If, if you could just have a few of these circumstances better. Here's a guy who had all the circumstances arranged just how he wanted them, and he can't get sleep. So we've got to find peace somewhere else other than circumstances. Verse 6, so I commanded that all... Okay, Nebuchadnezzar, now, now think about this. Nebuchadnezzar, you've had a terrible dream. It's terrified you. You know who to go to, right? We've been down this road before. It was literally two chapters ago. Come on, Nebuchadnezzar. You got this. You've just seen God Almighty rescue his servants from a fiery furnace. So what are you going to do? Who are you going to seek out? So I commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be brought before me to interpret the dream for me. When the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners came, I told them the dream, but they could not interpret it for me. At some point, you've got to be like, Nebuchadnezzar, get with the program. Okay. Here you are going right back to the Chaldeans. Remember them? The, 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 the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners? These are the exact people who wanted to convince Nebuchadnezzar to throw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into a blazing furnace. These are the same people who failed in chapter 2. I, I, don't, I don't get it. Nebuchadnezzar, just a few verses ago, said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It really looked like he had turned a corner. Can I ask you something? How is it possible? That you can see the work of God and immediately go back into your old ways. I just don't see how a human could do that. Well, I, I, sorry, I know one who could. Me. Anybody feel the same way? Nebuchadnezzar here has seen the work of God in his life. He's seen the work of God displayed in his life. And yet he goes right back to his old patterns as if God isn't real and as if God didn't do a thing can't pick on Nebuchadnezzar without realizing I've done the same thing. Finally, verse 8, Daniel came into my presence. Now, I don't even know if he sent for Daniel. He just said, oh, oh yeah, Daniel, the one who miraculously interpreted every dream I've ever had. You think he'd start with Daniel is my point. Finally, Daniel came into my presence. I told him the dream. He is called Belteshazzar for the name of my God, and the spirit of the holy gods is in him. That's... Yeah. I mean, Nebuchadnezzar's doing pagan theology the best he can. And he, in his world, all these gods are, are real. And so something's different about Daniel. And so he says, he says it this way. So he tells the story in his own words. And I'll, uh, 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 because this is a long passage, I'll tell you about the dream he has. He tells Daniel that he dreamed this dream of a giant tree and the branches spread out all across the world and all the little forest critters made a home in the tree. So the tree wasn't just powerful and flourishing, but because of its flourishing, all the animals were able to flourish. And the birds had their nests and it touched the heavens and every creature fed from it. But then this watcher, this uh, holy one, this, this watchman, this angel, uh, thunders, cut it down. He orders, let this tree be cut down. And the tree is cut down. And it's not just a disaster for the tree, but now all the birds and the animals have to scatter. And now because this tree is cut down, everyone that uh, took nourishment from the tree is out of luck. The, uh, in verse 15, the watcher says, okay, but, but leave the stump. So cut it down, but don't call the stump grinder. Just leave the stump and its roots, but bind it, right? Put, put a fence around it, bound with iron and bronze. Let, let it remain in the ground, in the grass of the field. Let him, okay, that's weird. Now the it, the tree, the stump has become a him. It's personified. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven and let him live with the animals among the plants of the earth. 
Let his, it's getting weird, let his mind be changed from that of a man and let him be given the mind of an animal. So now, now, now this, this stump is, a, I mean, this, this tree is apparently representing a, a kingdom or a man and, and this person's mind, whoever it is, is going to be cut, cut down and, and mind be changed from a man to an animal till seven times pass by for him. Very cryptic. Does that mean seven years, seven months, seven weeks, seven days? Yeah, seven times. <laughs> who knows the decision is announced by messengers the holy ones declare the verdict so that the living may know ah and he tells you why this is all happening that the and we see this over and over um remember the um old testament writers did not have uh they couldn't go back in the scrolls and put bold they couldn't underline and worst of all in the ancient scrolls they had no emojis and so without emojis, there was no way to emphasis, uh, emphasize something. So how did you do it? There's only one way, repetition. So count how many times you're going to see this phrase. This is the theme of Daniel 4. Cut this tree down. Let, it, l- let the band of iron be put around it. Let, let, let whoever this represents, let their mind be changed from a mind of a man to a mind of an animal. Why? Here's why. So that all the living may know. That's us, those who are reading the word years later. Let everybody know. That the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes and sets over them the lowliest of people. Don't get this twisted. It's the Most High who is sovereign. Now that is quite a proclamation to someone who would... Nebuchadnezzar would call himself Nebuchadnezzar Most High. And, uh, you know, there is no other emperor greater than he. He's looking around going, I'm I'm it. There's nobody else in the ancient Near East that could compete with him. So here Nebuchadnezzar thinks he's the most high, and he's told the most high rules over you. And that is a lesson to every leader. Nebuchadnezzar is mighty, but God is almighty. The rulers of this age rule, but God overrules. We see that over and over as a theme in Daniel. And that is what? That is hope to those of us living in exile. That whoever our king or leader happens to be, there is a God who overrules, who is almighty, who is most high. Nebuchadnezzar, of course, panics and uh, calls for this interpretation, whatever to make of this. You know, I, I got to pick on Nebuchadnezzar just one, one more time um, because I've done the same thing. You're telling me the wisest soothsayers in the world, the wisest magicians, enchanters, and all these uh, Chaldeans, you're telling me you got a dream that you had this big, expansive tree. It's cut down, right? And then for seven times, and then the, 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 the person loses their mind and becomes like a mind of an animal. Now, there may be some specifics you have questions about, but then he says, and we're doing this so that you'll know the most high rules over everything. I'm sorry, it does not take a dream scholar to figure this one out. Does it? I mean, you would think if you were even a lousy, even if you were a rookie soothsayer in Babylon, you could be like, well, I can tell what's happening. It means it's, it's a word of judgment, right? So that you humble yourself. It wouldn't take a scholar to figure that out. So I think the reason he takes so long and the reason he doesn't want to get Daniel is because I think Nebuchadnezzar can see from a mile away what this dream's about. I think he just doesn't like it and that's a word for how we read the bible 
there is a kind of Christian maturity that goes deep into the things of God and looks for the hidden things and the mysteries and wants to know every little detail and, you know, can I understand every little bit of this? Uh, but don't, um, don't ever allow your hunt for the intricacies of Scripture to just be a smokescreen for disobedience to disobey what you do know. The bare word of God. We know the difference in right or wrong. God's word has given us that. And uh, uh, I think sometimes we do like Nebuchadnezzar. Um, well, it says here I need to love my neighbor as myself. It's going to be hard to do. You know what? Let's look in Revelation for some mysteries, right? <laughs> Something complicated, you know. Uh, once heard of somebody studying Greek, and uh, he was learning biblical Greek, and he wrote, and I've never forgotten this, and he said... Um, the thing that he was most shocked by when he went to seminary was not how difficult the Greek was, but how easy it was. And here's what he meant by that. If you go and learn the Greek for take up your cross and follow me, you study and study and study and realize what the Greek is really saying is take up your cross and follow me. And you realize the hard part is not knowing those letters. The hard part, of course, is take up your cross and follow I think that's what Nebuchadnezzar is trying to avoid. I know I've done it. Well, uh, Daniel, of course, knew exactly what it meant immediately. <laughs> Verse 19, but he's grieved. Then Daniel, also called Belteshazzar. That, remember, that was the Babylonian name he was given. So Nebuchadnezzar is writing this for all the world to hear. And so he wants credit. He wa the world knows him as Belteshazzar. So he wants, he wants everybody to know this is who interpreted. Was greatly perplexed for a time and his thoughts terrified him. So Daniel took no joy in this. So the king had to sort of prompt him. Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or its meaning alarm you. Right? In other words, give it to me straight. Tell me the truth. Uh, Belteshazzar answered, I wish this was a dream one of your enemies had. If only the dream applied to your enemies and its meaning to your adversaries. Uh, that is an incredible lesson for us, by the way, uh, who live in exile. If you feel like... Uh, uh, you, you, you have a, a, a system around you that's growing more secular or you have a leader and, and they're not a believer or you feel there's more hostility to Christians, then more and more you're going to be required to speak the truth in love. But notice how Daniel does it. He speaks the truth, but he does it in love. And I want to say, when people say speak the truth in love, sometimes, unfortunately, uh, what they mean is speak the truth, but do it in a nice way, do it in a kind way. And that's part of it. But speak the truth in love means more than that. It means speak the truth, but do you actually love the person you're speaking to? Does it really come from a heart of love? Do you really love? Daniel loved Nebuchadnezzar. That's incredible. Nebuchadnezzar is who destroyed Jerusalem. Nebuchadnezzar is who carried him and his friends out of exile. I mean, I mean, out of Israel into exile. Daniel and his friends are the captives. And Daniel, in the face of this enemy pagan king, has what? Love. How's he free to do that? I think he's free to do that. He can love Nebuchadnezzar because though Nebuchadnezzar is the one in earthly authority over him, I think Daniel never forgot his Lord and the Most High God is God. That frees him to love this pagan king. But he really loved him. So he tells him, look, you know, the, 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 the tree's going to be chopped down. Here's what it means. Verse 24. This is the interpretation, your majesty. This is the decree, the most high. Now notice he keeps calling God the most high has issued against the Lord my king. I know you think you're the most high, but nope. Here's the message, verse 25. You'll be driven away from the people and you will live with the wild animals. 
This is a crazy prophecy, but yeah, you will eat grass like the ox and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times, again, we don't know seven weeks, seven years, we don't know. We'll pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. Is there any good news? Is there any mercy? Well, yeah. Verse 26, here's the mercy. The command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots means your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. You're not God. Your Babylonian gods are not God. There is one God. There's none like him. When you acknowledge that, that heaven rules, the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. I told you that's a, a underline, right? Repetition. Every leader, to, to, to remember when Pontius Pilate told Jesus, aren't you scared of me? Don't you know I have authority of life or death? Jesus says, whoa, you wouldn't have any authority except, you wouldn't have an ounce of authority except what God has given you. We live in 2021. We have Christian brothers and sisters around the world being thrown in prison in North Korea or Saudi Arabia and Afghanistan, Iran and Somalia and Yemen. These supreme, quote unquote, rulers do not have supreme power. It's heaven that rules. Pontius Pilate, by the way, of course, is dead and gone. Hitler is gone. Stalin is gone. Chairman Mao is gone. Kim Jong-il is gone. But God is alive and well. Heaven rules. And this is incredibly merciful. Verse 27, Daniel has this conversation where he attempts to say, look, I'm going to give you some good advice. If you would just repent, if you would just not be so arrogant. Look at verse 27. Therefore, your majesty, be pleased to accept my advice. It doesn't look like Nebuchadnezzar asked for advice, but maybe the look on his face, Daniel felt he had an opportunity. If you would repent, renounce your sins by doing what is right, your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. Who knows? God may relent. It, it, it may be that your prosperity will continue. So does he do it? Does it work? Well, Let's see. Verse 28. All this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. And 29. Twelve months later. Okay, so Nebuchadnezzar thinks about it. He was terrified. Did it work? Is he going to humble himself? Did he change? Did he acknowledge that heaven rules? Twelve months later. Uh, there you can, I'm, I'm obviously signaling. Some of you know the story. You know the answer tragically. No. But part of the, part of the problem is the 12 months later. Uh, I, I think that it is difficult for us uh, sometimes. Uh, uh, we struggle with this. We think that the patience of God means he doesn't care about judgment. It's an easy mistake to make. See, Nebuchadnezzar wakes up the next morning. He's still got a kingdom. Hadn't, hadn't, hadn't turned into an animal mentally or whatever that prophecy was. And the next morning, he's still got a kingdom. And the next morning, he's still got a kingdom. So 12 months go by, and he assumes, well, I guess all that, you know, those preachers talk about judgment and getting right with the Lord. I guess that just, I guess that's all talk. I guess that doesn't matter. I guess it is the case that a man doesn't reap what he sows. Maybe there's not consequences for sin. It is one of the most tragic mistakes you can make. Do you realize if right now you are in rebellion against a holy God, every breath you take is a mercy? The clock is ticking and time is absolutely running out and you will reap what you sow. And the only reason judgment hadn't come down is mercy. He gave Nebuchadnezzar 12 months to repent. Oh, the mercy of God. The patience of God. Well, did it work? Did it take? 
verse 30. He's walking along the royal roof, the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And he looks out. And like, who says this? He looks out across the city. And he says, is not this the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and from the glory and for the glory of my majesty? I'm going to say it didn't take. <laughs> well, God has heard enough. I mean, he's in this great and aren't I the man? Look at what I did. I organized. I worked. I fought. And and. To Nebuchadnezzar, give the devil his due. The, the, uh, I mean, Babylon is, is, is full of splendor. There's the hanging gardens. It's the walled city. It's got this irrigated by this river. I mean, he's conquered everybody. He's looking out by my mighty power of a glory and my majesty. Uh, when God hears that, it, that's enough. Verse 31, uh, he cuts him off. Uh, God cuts him off mid-sentence. How do I know that? Even as the words were on his lips. <laughs> A voice came from heaven. All right, I've heard enough. This is what's decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. What do you mean taken? You can't take from me. I earned this. This is mine. Nope. Nope. Heaven rules. I want you to think about that word taken. Uh, You may have leadership over uh, a family. You may lead a business. You may lead a class of students. You may lead, you may be a coach, a teacher, a Uh, a president, a team captain, and yes, we ministers. But the lesson here is all leadership, I kind of got a one-point sermon today, all leadership is stewardship. It's from God. God has given you this leadership. So what do you do with that? Well, humble yourself and admit that heaven rules. Leadership, it's temporary. You're going to be held accountable. Heaven rules. Let me say it again. All leadership is stewardship. And I know there are some of you that might think, well, I haven't, I'm not a leader. I haven't been given a leadership position. That's not true. Everyone in here has leadership. You have some domain of influence or power. And you say, well, I, you know, I'm a little kid. I, I mean, I don't have leadership over any. You have leadership over your own body. You, you got your own bedroom? Some of you little kids got your own bedroom? Yeah. You have dominion over that bed and you can make it every morning. Mom used to say that to me when I was a kid. She'd say, Tom, I want, I'm, uh, I'm going to put you in charge of uh, taking the trash out. I was like, when you say I'm in charge of this, do I have a staff that, uh, you know, helps me with that? No, but the trash will get out. And, but you, you're in charge. You know, looking back on that, it's not a bad lesson. Leadership is stewardship. So how are you going to steward that? Now, some of you, of course, you know you're in a position of leadership, and so it applies directly. But I want everybody to think you have more leadership than you know. You are in charge of more than you think. All leadership is stewardship. God has appointed that for you, and that means God can take it. Humble yourself and admit that heaven rules. Nebuchadnezzar didn't get the lesson, and so uh, uh, verse 32, okay, you'll be driven, just like he said, you'll be driven away from people, you'll live with the wild animals, you'll eat grass like the ox, seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge the most, here it is, okay, this is like, what, the third, fourth time, most high is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. And immediately, verse 33, now there's no 12 months of repentance, uh, a time for repentance. No, now, immediately, verse 33, immediately what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. 
Sure enough, he was driven away from people, ate grass like the ox. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle, his nails like the claws of a bird. Oh, how the mighty have fallen. This is an actual documented uh, disease, this uh, particular uh, illness of the mind. And uh, apparently he, he, he became a, a, a beast mentally and, and, you know, lets his hair grow out and wants to eat the grass and lets his nails grow out like claws. It, it became part of his legacy. You can only imagine his staff trying to cover for this guy during that seven times. Can you imagine? Foreign dignitaries would come. I'm here to meet with Nebuchadnezzar. He's not in right now. Where is he? He's out in the field. Oh, he's always busy, always out in the field. Yeah, what you don't know is he's literally out in the field eating like a cow. At any rate, they have to cover for him for seven times. I don't know, seven weeks, seven years, whatever. It became part of his legacy. He tells the story himself. It's a word for every leader, a warning. Why? In a tragic and pathetic sense, watch this. What happened to Nebuchadnezzar physically, in the physical, is what pride does to us in the spiritual. Does that make sense? When you look at Nebuchadnezzar and you look at this, don't just laugh this off. Here you have a man who's become like an animal. You got to understand, that's happening in the physical for our benefit. We see that in Nebuchadnezzar, but that's exactly what pride does in the spiritual. He, 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 by refusing to glorify God, he lost his own glory as a human, right? By refusing to share with the poor, he becomes poorer than the poor. See? He becomes outwardly what his heart had been spiritually and inwardly, a beast. Uh, remember what Daniel calls him out on? You're not showing mercy to the oppressed. That's right, animals don't show mercy, do they? Nature is red in tooth and claw. I'm not talking about your little house cat. I'm sure it's an angel, you know. I'm not talking about a domesticated animal. But it says Nebuchadnezzar was a wild animal. Wild animals don't show much. Have you ever heard, have you ever seen a bird of prey? Can you imagine a hawk swoop down, get a field mouse, and be like, you know, I'm going to let you go. I don't need to eat today. I, the hawk, will starve that you may go free. No, they don't do that, right? They don't do that. I, I remember when we first came from New York, a cat adopted us. If you don't, okay, all right. So this, this cat became our cat, I guess, by the cat's decision, not ours. And I remember we'd only been here a few weeks. And, you know, of course, city living, you don't always see this so up close. And there was a chipmunk in our backyard. And our cat was killing it and destroying it. And blood's going everywhere. And my kids and my wife, they're yelling, like, what are you doing? What are you doing? I'm like, they're doing what all their DNA is telling them to do. Right? And we're shocked. Do you know that? Humans, however, can show mercy. Humans have this incredible ability. Even if I'm really hungry, I can share my food with someone who's more hungry than me. Even if I need shelter and clothing, I can share clothing with someone else. That is an incredible thing. Nebuchadnezzar refused to show mercy, so he became an animal. But I would tell you, he was inwardly an animal. That's what pride does. It puts us strictly in competition. It's my life for yours. And if I see you getting a little bit too much of the center stage spotlight, I have to push you down a peg. Why? Because there's only so much spotlight to go around, and I need it. Nature is red in tooth and claw. And pride, Nebuchadnezzar, you get to see outwardly what pride does to you inwardly. Don't look at this and go, I'm glad 
glad that could never happen today. I'll never be out in the field and my nails grow like claws, my hair grow out, and I'll become, you know, that's, that's what pride does inwardly. And it's a warning to all of us. How do we get our sanity back? How does God cure us of the spiritual cancer? Let's bring this to a close. Verse 34, here's how. At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven. And my sanity was restored. There's a whole sermon there. You want to get your sanity back? Worship. Take your eyes off yourself and put them on the only one who deserves glory and the only one who deserves power. And suddenly the world is rightly ordered. When you lift your eyes to heaven and praise the Most High and honor and glorify Him who lives forever, that is the sanest thing you can do. The Bible says God is the center of everything and we orbit around Him. When we put ourselves at the center of everything, that's that's, that's insanity. Romans 1 says this very thing. Claiming to be wise, we worship the creature instead of the creator. Claiming to be wise, we became fools. That's why the Bible says to ignore God. That's the definition of insanity. Proverbs 1, 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. People look around, they go, man, the, you watch the news, you read the newspaper, it feels like the world's gone crazy. Correct. Correct. That's exactly right. Man, you, you hear that? I don't see how somebody could do that. I don't see how a person could do that. That's insane. Correct. That's what the Bible would say. And sanity is only restored when people come into a proper relationship with their maker and creator. Well, when you raise your eyes to heaven, sanity restored. Look at this poem. His dominion, he writes, his dominion. Suddenly Nebuchadnezzar, the pagan king, becomes a psalmist. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? You see what he's doing? He's acknowledging, whoa, 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 heaven rules, not me. I'm a king, but it's by his fiat that I'm a king, not mine. Verse 37, now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven because everything he does is right and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. To which everybody in Nebuchadnezzar's staff who'd seen all this is saying, yes, uh uh-huh, amen, that's right. We've seen it. Those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Now, I want to close by asking you to think about how this message is going to apply to your life. You can start this today. You, as I said earlier, you have more leadership than you know. Uh, uh, you say, well, no, I, I'm not given domain over anything. I'm not given, I, I, don't, I don't know what you're talking about. I'm not, I'm not a boss. I'm not a ruler. I'm not a leader. Let me stop you right there. You absolutely are a leader. And that, what did I tell you? That leadership is stewardship. So how are you going to live humbly? How are you going to acknowledge heaven rules? Well, let's start in the simplest level of leadership there is. You would say, even if, even if you say, I have no leadership at all, you have leadership over your own body. You have leadership over your own body. So how are you going to treat that body? How are you going to treat your health? I deserve it. I deserve better. Right? How, how, what would it look like to live in pride starting now? I deserve better. And I need to to uh, be self-absorbed or to look at your body and say every day is a gift 
And every morning when I wake up and I put my feet on the floor and I stand up and I stretch, I go, God, today, if I've got good health, it's a gift from your hand. If I'm in poor health, I'll walk through that in communion with you, but I'm not going to take a day of good health for granted. How many of you have been through a sickness or an illness or a surgery and the first thing we came out is, I will not take this for granted. I won't take these working knees for granted. I won't take this back for granted. Some of you, I'm giving you ideas of what hurts right now. You're like, yeah, yeah. But to be a steward of and to say, you know what? Heaven rules. And if I live, I live under the Lord. And if I die, I die under the Lord. Whether I live therefore or die, I am the Lord's. My body belongs to Him. That means uh, a sexual purity. That means the way I'm going to honor it. That means the whole thing. This body is yours. And one day they're going to drag us off and I'm going to spend every breath I have glorifying you and sharing your goodness with other people in every way I can. Why? Because my leadership over my body is stewardship, and I'm going to be held accountable for it. And heaven rules my body, not me. So I'm going to present it as a member of righteousness, not unrighteousness. Does that, does that make sense? I, I tried to pick the smallest sphere of leadership I could. Uh, some of you lead, and you can extrapolate this. Oh, there's no need to belabor the point. But some of you have leadership over your finances. God's entrusted you with finances. You determine where they go. Some of you have money, that discretionary income. That's money that doesn't already have somebody else's name on it. <laughs> well, that discretionary income, you, you determine. How would you live in pride? Well, when it comes to money, you live in pride by saying, it's mine. And not only is it mine, I, I earned it. I worked hard for it. It's, it's mine because I, whoa, whoa, whoa. Humility says, yeah, you worked hard. Who gave you the strength to work hard? Yeah, yeah, you're smart. Who gave you the brains? Who gave you the education? Who gave you the opportunity? Who's really putting food on your table? So whose money is this? It's God's. And I'm going to acknowledge that heaven rules when it comes to my giving. Calendar. It's my, boy, we get, we, we get real irritated the minute we decide this is my 24 hours. Because now everybody that gets in on my plan is an interruption. If I say, God, they're your 24 hours, then everybody you send me as a potential for ministry, a way to bless. You see the difference? Leadership is stewardship. I've been given leadership over my calendar. Some of you lead a family. Can you imagine as a mom or dad saying, wait a minute, ultimately, they're not my kids. I know, you, sometimes you're tempted to literally say, these are not my kids, right? But ultimately, they're not my kids. They're God's kids. And I'm a steward to raise these kids in a God-honoring way. And so I'm praying every day, God, they're a blessing. God, they're a gift. God, help me lead well. Help me not give away and abdicate the leadership I'm supposed to have over these children. I'm going to make Christian education a priority. I'm going to check myself with your spouse. I will serve them. They're a blessing. They were given. With your company, I'll lead with integrity. I'm a steward. And the list could go on and on. We've got to acknowledge that heaven rules it's our only hope for curing this uh, for god to cure this spiritual cancer of pride chuck's going to come and lead us in a time of response a time of invitation i uh i i can't help but point out i can't help but notice that um in this passage if you're like me uh you know boy daniel has been so convicting and each and every one of these sermons, I'm just like stepping all over my own toes. So if I've stepped on your toes, I promise I had to get through mine to get there. Uh, but in each one of these passages, I can't help but see the grace of God for prideful people like me. And for anyone who wrestles with it, for anyone who would say, boy, I don't, I don't do that. 
I don't do that. I'm supposed to acknowledge that heaven rules, but so much of my time I treat as my own. So much of my, my family, I, I, I'm selfish with my own money and so forth and so on. I'm, I'm so filled with this pride. I notice it, of course, because I can quickly spot pride in other people. If your pride radar is set to maximum, it's because you have pride, right? Of course. So I hear all that and I go, you know, what's, what's the hope for me? Well, this is what's so incredible. I told you that uh, to, 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 to be prideful on the inside is to, to be debased, to become less than what you deserve to be. And that's the nature of pride. Pride always says, I deserve more, I deserve more. And there's that crazy moment when Nebuchadnezzar looks out and he says, didn't I build all this for my glory and my majesty? Can you imagine looking out over a city going, didn't I build all this for my own glory? And he's immediately turned into an animal. You know, this this is what I thought. There is one who literally could look out over every city I mean, this is great. There is, there is literally one, there is one who could walk out on the roof of heaven and look out over every kingdom and every city and say without irony, without, he wouldn't misspeak. There is one. Jesus of Nazareth could literally look out and say, isn't everything in this world created by me and for my glory? And he'd be right. I wouldn't be prideful at all. He'd be right. He literally deserved. That's the whole thing of pride. I deserve better. I deserve better. He literally deserved better. He was, in fact, he had equality with God. And what did he do? Philippians says, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. But he made himself of no reputation and took upon himself the form of a servant, was made in likeness of man and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Isaiah 53 said he was so disfigured, he didn't even look human. You see that? He allowed himself to be debased all the way to the point of being a beast, being an, uh, didn't even look human there, so bloody and mangled on the cross so that you and I could be fully restored to humanity under God's leadership. He did that for me and for you. Pride says, it's my life for yours. Jesus says, it's my life for yours. To look up our eyes to heaven, to behold the man on the cross, to think about him risen from the grave, to think about his great act of humility is a grace to us. To walk in humility in all your leadership today, in every avenue of your leadership, humble yourself and acknowledge that heaven rules. Let's pray. God, grant to us a fresh joy in your gospel, in the good news that you rule over everyone and everything. And God, grant to us the good sense, the sanity to worship. If there's anyone here who doesn't know you, let today be that day where they humble themselves, come before you. Lord, for those who are wrestling with pride, let them lay it down today and walk in that humility. Thank you, God, for the good news of the gospel. In Jesus' name.